This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of December 16, 2013, and I'm Michael Howie, welcoming you to episode 111 of Defender Radio. We usually try to focus on fur-bearing animals in our episodes, those animals cruelly tortured and killed by the fur-trading trappers of our country. But as APFA is growing, we've seen another issue arise that we are beginning to focus more time on, wildlife culls. Defender Radio News. From coast to coast, people are killing deer. The reasons run a full gambit, be it sport hunting, alleviation of nuisance complaints, vehicular collisions, and, unfortunately, for political points. Municipalities are being convinced by the public, specifically by lobbyists, as well as biased, underfunded government departments, that culling deer and other ungulates is the only solution to prevent any potential conflict. This means in protected natural areas, like the Royal Botanical Gardens in southern Ontario, provincial and federal parks in Alberta, and simple forested areas in British Columbia, hunters are readying their weapons for a shot at a deer. Through our work with finding coexistence solutions for communities who are dealing with fur-bearing animals, we found a lot of crossover with other non-human animals. In the instance of deer, feeding bylaws and the enforcement of them coupled with education and simple environmental design, can prevent a vast majority of potential conflicts, just like it can with beavers, coyotes, or fox. While our focus will remain on fur-bearing animals, just as it has since the first letters were exchanged between our founders in the 1920s, we are prepared to offer our assistance to municipalities and communities struggling to coexist with deer. To help out, we've developed this special episode of Defender Radio, focusing on deer and coexistence strategies, like Sarah Dubois of the BCSPCA, Rick Hubian from Parks Canada, and Liz White of Animal Alliance of Canada. Please help us help communities by sharing this episode with your friends, family, and co-workers, and know that a better future for us must mean a better future for the animals. Defender Radio News the issue of quote-unquote nuisance deer is one familiar to Sarah Dubois. Sarah is the manager of wildlife services for the BC SPCA and regularly deals with the ongoing debate over what is and isn't nuisance wildlife. Of particular interest to Sarah has been the growing debate over deer culling in British Columbia. She joins us now to discuss this in greater detail. Hey Sarah, I found that when we talk about deer, there's really two opinions people who love them and want them in their backyards, and people who hate them and don't want them anywhere near them. And I think they find them intimidating. Some people think that they're, they could be dangerous. You know, obviously, people have the same reaction with bears. They don't want them in their backyards. But at the same time, there's more of a reverence for them. They don't want them killed either. They just want them to be told to move on. We're seeing similar issues that BC is facing in Ontario, Quebec, and on the East Coast. Before we go further, I need to ask, is there any actual evidence of an increase in deer populations in urban areas? The answer is we don't know. The trend in certain 
wild environments is that they're either stable or sometimes decreasing. In terms of actual how frequency of sightings of deer, those are definitely up. Yeah, our interactions with deer in urban environments are on the rise. But that does not necessarily mean that actual populations are on the rise. How do we establish that then? Because that's what we're told by people in government, people in the hunting lobby, and people who are even just average citizens, that there are more deer now than there were before. And again, it could be the same one deer that they see 10 times a day, whereas they mainly only saw him one time a day in the past. So the concept of actual deer overpopulation is something that has to be investigated with a very scientific and rigorous method of you know, tracking and counting those deer and identifying them and ensuring the same deer is not counted more than once. So that's actually quite an undertaking to do that. So people have generally just guesstimated. They all go out on one day and, you know, take out 20 volunteers and count as many deer as they can see within an hour. And so they hope that they're not having multiple sightings. But again, unless you're identifying these animals, doing a really rigorous study is, is very challenging. Even when governments get involved, we hear of them doing only a one-day flyover to count. And that's a really bad method of trying to get an assessment of a population. And biologists know this, and so I'm sure they don't have anyone who's really consulting with them on this. The reality is even when they know that there is not an overpopulation, that it is just one group of deer that's continuously in one area, they have still gone ahead and done a call. So they, no matter what the population is, if the animals themselves are healthy and thriving, you know, the environment's able to support them, it's really a people issue. Our cultural carrying capacity is what we call it instead of a biological carrying capacity. The cultural carrying capacity has been exceeded, basically. People's tolerance level is lower than the animal numbers that are there. And that's really what we have to get work on the people tolerance issue. So if we're not sure how many deer there are, and there are people saying that there are more or there's a healthy population, why isn't a cull going to work? Well, a cull is intended to remove a group of animals. And the reality is that if they don't know how many animals they need to remove and they don't know which animals are going to be the ones that actually make a difference in the population, you know, which are the breeding animals and that type of thing, it really biologically just makes no sense to indiscriminately pick the first 25 that walk into your trap. And we saw that in Cranbrook, where the first 25 happened to be two different species, and they still killed half of the wrong species. I guess the question becomes, if we can't or shouldn't cull them, is there a way we can or should control the population of deer? Well, I think it's about controlling people's behaviors and activities first. I think that's what we need to try to address at the same time as the deer issues. But we always have this default of like, okay, well, we need to manage the deer, when in fact it's really the people management component that we're missing in this piece of the pie here. So by managing the people, their activities, we know people are feeding these deer. We know they go to the local merchant you know, stores and buy food for the deer for the winter. So if we are causing the problem by allowing people to do this, not enforcing bylaws, then it's just going to continue no matter if there's 100 deer in the area or there's 20 deer in the area. The, the mass and congregation of these animals is not going to stop unless we stop the human activity. What can a municipality as a whole do to try and effect change to prevent deer from hanging around certain areas or prevent them from being seen as a nuisance? Well, we 
know that the municipalities have tried to implement a feeding bylaws, a few of them, including Oak Bay, for example, or places like Cranbrook, but they're not enforcing them. They're not actually giving out fines and actively pursuing individuals who are feeding. So that's a big problem. But also the municipality's role in controlling parks and green spaces, you know, what they're growing in terms of actual forage, potentially, for the deer is something that they can consider within their own parks department what might be a species of plant that deer will not come after. They can also allow for um, different height limits of fencing in communities. Some communities have restrictions as to the height of the fence, so that's something to consider. And also just general education of the, the residences so that individual residents can be deer aware, just like we are bear aware in our communities, we have to be deer aware as well. The potential for collisions is a relatively serious problem. In these communities where they're saying they're concerned, what can they do when we know that just putting up a deer crossing sign isn't always helpful? No, the deer don't always get that memo. The, the issue here, uh, you know, and we've seen it work, uh, in, I've seen some really interesting designs of the fencing along the highways. It's not just for deer, but it's for other animals as well. But they have very particular fencing that allows, you know, every 500 meters, every so often, there's actually like a, a one-way door so that if a deer gets onto the highway somewhere else, it can actually, you know, it almost funnels the deer into this area where it can get through the one-way door and get back into the forest so that if it is, you know, enters. But fencing is, uh, you know, expensive and it should be perhaps a responsibility not only of a municipality but also you know for, for the provincial highways department and things like that to consider because it is a risk to people and to the deer we don't want to we want to ensure that the fewer accidents the better if we're providing the resources for a healthy population of deer is it up to us in some way to manage that i think so you know again i don't think we should be the ones who are providing deer with resources i think again the environment is supposed to function in this, you know, a cycle where, okay, some deer in their first year just don't make it. That is a natural thing. We see that at wildlife rehabilitation centers. We know there are certain deer that just don't thrive in their first year, and that's something natural. But if you go to feed those animals through the winter, all of a sudden you're going to increase, you know, outside the limits of what the environment can support you know, for that population. So we shouldn't be trying to do as little manipulation as possible so that we don't have to constantly manage. You know, the deer did just fine before we all arrived. So, yes, there are going to be cycles of, you know, ups and downs, and their natural predators, uh, you know, can't necessarily get into our urban areas anymore. But I think the less manipulation, the better. Hunters will often say that they provide a better, cleaner death for deer than they may face in the form of starvation or disease. I often struggle with how to verbalize that it may not be pleasant, but the way nature removes animals from a population is much more precise than the way humans would. How important is that in the management of a natural population? I think I heard the best phrase from uh, that kind of encapsulates that sentiment uh, from Temple Grandin's work, and she said, nature can be cruel, but we don't have to be. And I think that that's important. And we recognize there are some times in nature where animals will die an unpleasant death, and that is part of the natural system. And we should attempt to always ensure that we don't inflict 
you know, harm or pain or suffering or fear in animals during their death. So I think that we have the ability and the, and the means of ensuring animals have a good death when that death is necessary. And so an animal that is sick and suffering, and we've had a role in that, you know, in leading to that sick and suffering, if an animal's been hit by a car, for example, yes, I, do, I believe that we, we should, um, and if, if we can, euthanize that animal. But to say that animals who have ticks, you know, that may or may not, you know, have mange and, and may or may not kill them, it might just make them sick for a while, again, the natural system is supposed to work out which animals should survive and, and which shouldn't make it for genetic population reasons, right? So by us going in and taking out only the deer that have the biggest rack, that actually has a significant impact on the genetic population by removing consistently the animals with only the big trophies. So we're changing the genetics of those populations through human actions. So there's a lot of consequences to what we do. When I talk with municipalities and tell them that a cull isn't necessary because there's all these other options, they turn around and say, who's going to pay for that? Is there an easy answer to that question? Unfortunately, no. There's this constant back and forth between municipalities and the province, and, and you know, animals are losing, I think, unfortunately, here. So who should pay for this? Should it be nonprofit organizations? Not necessarily. We do, you know, have this public trust of wildlife and that's something that has always been paid through public monies, through tax dollars. So I don't want to, you know, leave it into the hands of nonprofits and volunteers to have to manage wildlife. That's really not uh, our responsibility. So I think municipalities and provinces really need to work together on these issues. And more monies need to be allocated to them. You know, think of the monies that are divvied up within ministries, the Ministry of Environment or Natural Resources, whatever province um, uh, parental title it has. You know, they get less and less money out of the big pot because of other costs like education and health care. And um, I think that we need to remind ourselves that uh, the environment and our wildlife are important towards our our education and our healthcare too, they make our lives, you know, much more uh, enjoyable because of their presence and our healthy environment. So it's just, these, they do need more monies allocated to the ministries and the municipalities shouldn't have to uh, be the ones left holding the responsibilities that were previously part of the government. That was Sarah Dubois of the BC SPCA. To find out more about Sarah's work, visit spca.bc.ca. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. Over 3 million animals are killed each year in Canada for their fur. This holiday season, why not give the gift of hope to Canada's wildlife by calling 604-435-1850 and giving a holiday gift today? The Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals works to protect wildlife in Canada. Call 604-435-1850 and please, give generously. Give a voice to the animals who can't speak for themselves by calling 604-435-1850. Bearsmart.com is the most comprehensive resource on the web for all things bear. At Bearsmart.com, we work hard to ensure people and bears safely and respectfully coexist. Join us as we give bears a voice at bearsmart.com. 
Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America's song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. This is Defender Radio. Earlier this year, Parks Canada completed work on a massive project, eco-passages and extensive fencing along a highway that runs through Kootenay National Park. The goal was simple, ensure the safety of wildlife, drivers and ecosystems. And though there was a big price tag, so far the project has been a resounding success. Rick Kubian, a resource conservation manager at Parks Canada, joins Defender Radio to talk more about how this project is protecting ungulates in Alberta. Hi Rick, what can you tell us about the background of this project? Well, wildlife mortality is a significant concern for us here uh, in the mountain parks. Uh, and we have a number of transportation corridors that run through the valley bottoms of Banff National Park, Kootenai National Park, Yoho National Park. Uh, and interestingly, those are national transportation corridors in many cases. Uh, and so it's a long-term problem for us, uh, whereby there's sort of two two aspects to it, really. Uh, the first is the direct wildlife mortality, uh, which is uh, a problem in terms of maintaining healthy wildlife populations. Uh, and then the second part of the problem from an ecological perspective uh, is the connectivity that can be lost. So in other words, animals at some traffic volumes may stop moving across these features, uh, and some species are more sensitive to that uh, than others. And so they can become isolated and no longer utilize the landscape um, like they did historically. And I suppose a final very important component to this is the visitor safety part, uh, whereby you know human wildlife uh, pardon me, uh, wildlife vehicle strikes uh, are, are a risk to visitor safety. What was the planning in looking to correct these potential problems? Well, of course, uh, you know, when you've got a problem like that, you, you look around for solutions, and we didn't have to look very far. Uh, starting in 1996, we began fencing and building wildlife crossing structures on the Trans-Canada Highway through Banff National Park. Um, and through that process, really over, over 30 years of pioneering these types of highway mitigations, uh, led by Parks Canada with, with a number of other partners, we've seen considerable success. So we had a pretty good model to work from uh, that really combined fencing and these crossing structures to help reduce wildlife vehicle collisions. Uh, and that program really has a resounding success with uh, an 80% reduction of overall wildlife vehicle collisions and about 96% for our large ungulates, including elk and deer. How important does the connectivity of land become, not just for the vehicular concerns, but for the wildlife? Well, absolutely. The, the driver for this project is uh, something called our Action on the Ground funding, which is aimed at ecological integrity in national parks. So the driver for this really was from an ecological perspective for this particular project. Uh, and so there's a huge focus on ensuring that connectivity uh, exists. And so uh, the types of things that we've done is we've tried to understand how wildlife are using the landscape currently, 
Um, we've done that through animal tracking. Uh, we've done that through wildlife surveys over a fairly long period of time to understand where they're crossing uh, the highway. And then we've tried to build structures that will enable those species to cross the highway. And we've built different size structures and different types of stru structures for different wildlife species. So we have some small, relatively, like essentially large culverts that are aimed at small mammals and or amphibians. We have uh, larger underpasses in this case uh, that are aimed at ungulates such as deer and, and moose, uh, as well as carnivores such as wolves and bears. And over in Banff National Park, we also have, uh, where, where we have sort of a longer areas of fencing, we have overpasses, uh, which are aimed at the suite of largely, our, our larger mammals. Why did Parks Canada choose to look at coexistence solutions as opposed to lethal action? Well, for sure for us, you know, our baseline is, is uh, that we're striving to maintain ecological integrity for the park. Uh, and this includes healthy populations, and a diversity of species that use it. So, uh, you know, our, our objectives really are to maintain those wildlife populations uh, at, at levels that are sustainable over time on this landscape. So, you know, the objective here was really to provide them the opportunity to move across this highway safely, uh, and the thought of, of a cull really was never part of the, the program. This project has had a large price tag. How did Parks Canada decide to invest so much? Yeah, this uh, we spent 4.9, or we will have spent at the end of the project 4.9 million dollars through our action on the ground funding. Uh, the bottom line is that these types of mitigations across major highways aren't cheap. Uh, the bulk of that funding, approximately four million dollars, was actual highway construction, uh, primarily focused on the underpasses and the, and the actual crossing structures. Um, and and so. Um, those, those dollars, what we envision them as is a long-term investment uh, in, a, in a very major highway that uh, connects Calgary um, to British Columbia, uh, is a major source of uh, tourism. Uh, and, and so the investment there is, is for a, from a long-term perspective, hopefully one that pays off with uh, enabling wildlife connectivity and Parks Canada to maintain ecological integrity while still enabling uh, people to move through this landscape safely. You've already mentioned an incredible 80% reduction in vehicular collisions. But how do you measure the success of keeping ecosystems healthy? Well, we have a larger suite of monitoring with respect to wildlife populations that will help us to value that. But specific to the success of this project, we actually monitor fairly heavily the actual crossing structures. So we understand which animal species are using those crossing structures, how frequently, uh, the types of structures that we're using. So we're able to feed back into future projects like this. Uh, and then we do some baseline monitoring that we've had ongoing for a long time now uh, that we're able to track wildlife mortality with respect to the highway. So we understand uh, the numbers of a, pop of a wildlife population that are being impacted by uh, mortality uh, with respect to the highway. There are a lot of municipalities, communities, private landowners, and even provincial bodies trying to find out how to coexist with deer and other ungulates. What advice would you offer to them? Well, we can say with some confidence that fencing really has proven to be the most effective method to mitigate uh, vehicle wildlife collisions. Uh, it's very important to note that uh, underpasses or overpasses need to be built or else the animals will lose their movement routes or simply travel around the fence end. So that's a real core piece to this. 
Uh, it really is a function of scale, though, um, whereby, you know, in terms of a, a mitigation project like the one we had in place on a large highway, that will drive what types of um, crossing structures you need to put in. For smaller projects and, and different wildlife species, you may not have to put in the same uh, number and or type of crossing structures. Uh, as the animal warning systems have shown some promise, uh, but their success may be specific to the local situation. To find out more about the Kootenai Project, visit www.pc.gc.ca. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at gateswildlifecontrol.com or call 416-750-9453. After a night out with your friends, there are always options for getting home safely. You could call your BFF, Take a cab, or maybe you'll grab the last bus. Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride. Find out more at arrivealive.org. Every year, dogs, cats, endangered species, and even people are caught in cruel leg hold, conibear, and other body gripping traps across Canada. Who will speak out for these innocent victims of an outdated industry? We will. I'm Leslie Fox, Executive Director of the Association for the Protection of Fur Bearing Animals. With your support, we can bring an end to the needless and painful deaths of hundreds of thousands of animals. Become a member today at FurBearerDefenders.com to find out how you can give hope for our fur-bearing friends. This is Defender Radio. Liz White may seem gentle, but when it comes to Canada's wildlife, she's a true warrior. With the backing of Animal Alliance of Canada, Liz has led numerous campaigns to improve the lives of wild animals, including deer. She joins us now to share her experiences and opinions on deer culls across Canada. Thanks for joining us again, Liz. Could you tell us a bit about your history with deer campaigns? Uh, Well, we've been um, involved with of the deer issue for quite a long period of time. Um, as many of your listeners might or might not know, <clears throat> deer are um, culled in um, many parks, in provincial parks, in federal parks. And um, and so we began looking at the, at the issue uh, related to some of these calls that have gone on. In Rondo Provincial Park, I believe they've gone on for about 20 years. And um, so looking at that situation and saying, well, it's quite clear that culling doesn't work, that you have to keep doing it over and over and over and over and over again. How do we look at these issues in a way that we can resolve um, some of the concerns that people have about the numbers of deer in the area um, and, and how we can 
resolve them in a way that the animals live and that people can coexist peacefully with them. So we started there, but we've really been looking at deer all across Canada, from B.C. to Ontario um, and beyond, uh, because it is such a pervasive issue at the moment. I think the obvious question is, why do people want to cull deer? Well, that's a really good question, Mike. The the ministries of environment in BC, for example, natural resources here, um, have determined that in certain areas deer are hyper, what they call hyper or over abundant. So their argument is that there are far more deer um, in an environment than the environment can sustain. And so that is biological baffle gab, frankly. Uh, the deer are there in numbers exactly because the environment can sustain those numbers. What those ministries don't tell you is that they, they want the environment to look a particular way. They want the trees to look a particular way. They want the undergrowth to look a particular way. They want all of these things. They want to create a garden. Um, and so the number of deer that are present in these environments are too many to have that particular look. So they deem them to be overabundant and they want them removed. The problem is, of course, that the, these um, these areas are in uh, in regions where there are lots of uh, lots of deer that can begin to move in when the animals are removed, and so it creates a void, and new animals move in, and that's why in places like Rondo they've had to do it for 20 years. That's why when we get into BC and Invermere and Cranbrook and Kimberley and Victoria, that once they start that process, in, they're going to have to continue it year after year after year as well because it just doesn't work. How do we address this? What kind of solutions are available to people? Right. So there, there are um, actually a number of solutions. Interestingly, um, the last fight we had before in Ontario in a place called Iroquois Heights, which is a conservation area in um, Hamilton, uh, the Conservation Authority and the Ministry of Natural Resources deemed that there were too many deer there and there was going to be a call and they held public meet. Anyway, we got that stopped after uh, a fairly lengthy period of time. The one thing that we succeeded in doing was getting the Conservation Authority to go to the people in the community who were aggressively feeding the deer and to try and get that stopped. And they pretty much got most of it stopped. I don't know that they got it all stopped, but they got most of it stopped. And the consequence to that is that the numbers of deer are are down by half. So, you know, we were faced with the arguments by the Ministry of Natural Resources and the Conservation Authority to begin with that the deer were there, they were trapped in that community, uh, they were there in high numbers, they couldn't get out. None of that proved to be true. And I think the fact that... Um, they did no culling in Iroquois Heights, but they did do the preventive work that needed to be done demonstrates that those preventive measures work. What we do know is that fencing works with deer, so if you don't want deer in your garden, you need to put a fence up. Yes, it costs you money, but at the end of the day, uh, you will have the kind of garden that you want. You will be able to grow hostas and tulips and all the other uh, plants that you want, or you may just want to have the deer there and, and really enjoy them, and so just uh, not put up a fence. But fencing works with deer for sure. Um, the On the road issue, the one of the, I think, more compelling issues is this issue of deer car collisions. Um, there's all kinds of um, 
arguments that the government puts forward to uh, cull deer, there's no de demonstrable uh, direct effect between culling deer and reducing the numbers of uh, deer car collisions. What we do know that works is uh, like a program in the city of Ottawa called Speeding Costs You Dearly, where during the seasons of rutting, um, where the deer are more on the move when it's during hunting and the deer are trying to escape and there's more movement of these animals, uh, the city of Ottawa puts up signs, speeding costs you dearly, and, and asks people to lower their um, the, the speed that they go. And because it's episodic, it seems to really work. In fact, the Ministry of Transport gave the city of Ottawa award for that program because they reduced the deer car collisions. They were the, the deer car collision capital in uh, Ontario, and they reduced those by about 40% with that program. So we know that there, there's best practices everywhere. Um, it's a matter of trying to get municipalities to look at these things in a serious way and actually begin to implement them properly so that they, they, they can assist people in trying to reduce conflict with, with the deer. We earlier heard from Parks Canada about their eco-passages and fencing in Kootenai National Park. What do you think of that kind of solution? There, if you travel through the par those parks, I just was through the Kootenais um, to get to one of the uh, municipalities that's looking at a deer cull. And um, all through um, that area, you go through Banff and so on, down through the Kootenai National Park, they're, start, they're fencing in Banff. They fenced everywhere in Banff. Now, I'm, you know, there are some downsides and upsides, but generally speaking, fencing deer so they can't just cross these busy highways is not a bad thing. And then they've begun to build, as you, as you know, these eco-passages, these, these large um, overpasses that are heavily treed and all that sort of stuff. So it looks like a normal forest, except it's going over a highway. And, uh, and those are, uh, of course, really helpful to wildlife. So there's some really good positive stuff going on. It's just that it seems um, that it went, when it comes to these local municipal issues, uh, the ministry who's, and, and the federal government, who's done a really good job at some preventive measures, kind of lose their head and don't talk about to municipalities about how to prevent conflict. How much of that do you think comes back to the fear of financing? Uh, I think I think the deer cull is motivated by politics. So, you know, the mayor of Oak Bay, uh, his phone rings, and people are saying, those damn deer ate my tulips, you know, or whatever. And, um, and so he has this constant barrage of people who are irritated about the impacts that deer have on their on their yard or property or whatever, um, and so his main drive, I think, and this is true, I would argue in pretty much everywhere where I've been doing this issue, is that he wants the phone to stop ringing. He doesn't care how it's done. Uh, he just wants the phone stopped ringing. And and the fact of the matter is. Um, if people see that you bring a trap into a community and you you trap a deer and you uh, put a bolt gun to its head and blow its brains out and take it away, people feel like something is really being done. Um, the fact of the matter is that it gives people a false sense of security that this is going to work. You know, in Cranbrook, the cost of doing this was $625 to $650 per deer. 
So when you add all these up, if you go and do 100 deer, you're talking about a lot of money for communities that are severely hurting for money, And whereas these other options can be done in cooperation um, with, with other governments, in cooperation with commercial entities, people like Deer Fence Canada that has produced these uh, very effective deer fencing, in, very inexpensive but effective deer fencing. Uh, all there's all sorts of um, relationships that communities could set up with with uh, with private entities and with other governments to actually do this stuff, and it would be in the end cheaper. Uh, but it isn't it isn't as immediate to get those phones stop ringing. And so I've been to. I've been to all three. I've been to all councils. I've been to Oak Bay, but I've been to the Capital Regional District. Um, I've been talking to various people in the ministry and uh, in the local community here, um, and it is it is an impervious wall to get them to talk about alternatives. It is a most interesting dilemma <laughs> because they just you. It's very very difficult to permeate that wall. They want to cull. They've made the decision to cull, very much like the Ministry of Natural Resources did about the, it reintroducing the spring bear hunt. They've made the decision. They're going to go for it. This is what is done with the deer. And so, they're, you know, whether you present alternatives or not doesn't really matter. I, I, you know, two years ago, I produced a 60-page report looking at all the alternatives and, and picking apart their science. That's the other thing, Mike, is their science stinks. And... You know, they they count deer when they're yarding in the winter time. So they the deer yard in in Short Hills Provincial Park. They'll yard in the Royal Botanical Gardens. They'll yard in various places. And so they're they're in larger. They tend to be in larger concentrations there. And so that's when the ministry counts them because that's when they can see them. Right, the leaves are off the trees. The snow's on the ground. It's uh, much easier to count these brown bodies in those circumstances. And then they say, well, that's the number of deer that are in the park, when that's not true. They yard up in the wintertime, they move, they disperse in the summertime. And so we've got numbers which are, are, are just wrong. And their, their, their um, definition of overabundance doesn't meet the criteria. Uh, their definition of damage in the park does not meet the criteria. They have not looked at what other uh, whether what other factors are impacting these parks, like the non-native earthworm on impacts on forest floors. All of those sorts of things are not taken into consideration. So the problem is they were dealing with bad science, bad policy, and uh, and a community that wants something done, so they're not going to listen to any alternatives. That, that's, we're in a perfect negative storm in a way. When we're talking about Royal Botanical Gardens and Oak Bay and some of the other locations where deer culls are occurring, is there an effective way to show that the general public doesn't want to cull? In my experience, they want the problem to go away. But once you show them what the plan is, they simply say, no, I don't want that. What can we, as individuals and organizations, do to try and change this habit of culling? Part, I think um, that my experience, it's interesting you should talk about this, that people don't know what's happening when they find out um, and it's explained to them. My experience in Cranbrook, so Cranbrook had two calls with this uh, captive bolt uh, clover trap process. 
and the first time it was it went by it got by people the second time um, the council met in secret and and it, uh, it and, and started the call in secret and but once people found out uh, about the traps and the process they were horrified but it had to come to that point it had to happen um, you know that people would walk by and know that there was a trap on somebody's front lawn and know that there were going to be deer in there and know exactly how that animal is going to be killed and then there was a turn in the community uh, that was remarkably interesting and I think what we have to do is to impart upon uh, the mayor of Oak Bay and uh, the um, Royal Botanical Gardens uh, Board of Directors that uh, they cannot do this stuff without uh, public exposure and without us being able to tell people the, the degree of cruelty that occurs in terms of these culls. And the fact that it doesn't need to be done, that there are alternatives, makes it even more a, a even more despicable thing. And I think we have to hang it on the politicians. So my advice to people is, you need, if you live in a community where this is happening, if you live in Oak Bay or you live around the Royal Botanical Gardens or wherever, you need to hold those politicians' feet to the fire. I think we should say in Ontario that Kathleen Wynne is orphaning bear cubs. I think we should say that Kathleen Wynne is allowing um, the killing of deer when it's not necessary. I think we need to hang it on the politicians because these are political decisions that are made um, really in absence of any consultation or any real discussion about public policy and any real information to the community as to how this happens. And I think they're hoping that this will just can be done and it'll go away and it'll be nice and quiet and won't be messy. And I think our message to them is, if you're going to proceed this way, it's going to be really, really messy. And we're going to make sure it's hung on you politically at the next election. Learn more about Liz White and Animal Alliance of Canada online at animalalliance.ca. That's our time for this week, folks. I hope you were able to learn a bit more about deer and feel encouraged to help protect wildlife from poor policy decisions in your community. As always, I'd like to thank Brad Gates of Gates AAA Wildlife Control for his sponsorship of Defender Radio, and all of you for joining us and sharing this information. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.